Today's episode is sponsored by Rebecca Bryan of Bryan House Quilts. Rebecca is offering a new online workshop, Playful Color Theory for Quilters, at the end of March. Head on over to Rebecca's website, brianhousequilts.com, for more details and to sign up for her newsletter. Listeners are welcome to a 20% discount on all of Rebecca's online workshops by using the code ABBY20 at checkout. Thank you so much, Rebecca. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 116 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about owning a quilt shop and a premiere quilt show with my guest, Jean Wells. Jean is an art quilter who's inspired by nature and the world around her. She's also the owner of The Stitch and Post, a quilt shop in Sisters, Oregon, that she's owned for 43 years. And she's the founder of the Sisters Outdoor Quilt Show, a world-renowned show that attracts tens of thousands of visitors to Sisters Oregon each July. She's the author of over two dozen books, is a popular workshop leader and presenter, and the winner of numerous national awards in the quilting industry. Jean Wells, welcome. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm so excited to talk with you. And I'd like to start by um, talking a little bit about place, about Sisters, Oregon, where you live. And Sisters is in Central Oregon. And I wondered if you would start by just explaining why it's named Sisters. Well, there are three uh, snow-capped mountains that are very iconic in the area that are called the Three Sisters. And so that's why our little town became Sisters um, in the early days. Okay. And you've lived in Central Oregon for almost your entire life. Is that right? That's true. I uh, grew up in Redmond, uh, and that is um, about 18 miles away. And we have uh, the second largest airport in Oregon is in Redmond. And I then went to Oregon State uh, for four years and then moved to Portland and taught home economics for eight years. And then my uh, husband and I and two children moved back to Sisters in 1974. Okay. So, and I feel like you've, you've really had an impact on Sisters Oregon. I mean, what you've created there has changed that place in a way that is really remarkable and uplifting. And I think we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about how you've done that and what effect it's had as we go here. But so you were born in 1943 and, and you grew up in Oregon. Your mother, your grandmother sewed and crocheted and she both was the grandmothers. Uh, both yeah. grandmothers. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they were the ones who taught you. Yes. Okay. And what kinds of things did you make as a child? Do you remember? Well, you know, when I I look back now, I realize I've always been a maker. I wanted always wanted to put things together or figure out how to do things. And I think I used to drive my mother crazy cuz she didn't like to have a mess, <laughs> so to speak, around the house. So, I always had to pick up after myself, but you know, I was wanting to sew from a very young age and finally at about 9 uh, she taught me how to use her sewing machine, 
And so I was just in heaven at that point. And I still have some doll clothes that I've made. And um, I just never stopped. And when you were in college, you you had mentioned earlier, you became a home economics teacher after college. Mm -hmm. What did you major in? Well, I went to Oregon State and I started out in clothing and textiles. And between my freshman and sophomore year, I spent a summer in New York with my aunt and uncle and went to Parsons School of Design. And I had wanted to be a fashion designer. And we took two different classes. One was um, draping, you know, working on a mannequin and with muslin. And I could just do that really, really easily. The other one, we were in an illustration sort of classroom, and we were supposed to be able to draw the fashion figure in five minutes, you know, sketch it out. I could not have drawn it in five hours. And so I was very discouraged. I felt like I couldn't become a fashion designer because I couldn't do that. You know, I now realize that was kind of narrow-minded thinking, but at the time, you know, I just felt like I was a failure. So when I went back to Oregon State, I talked to my advisor and I and I always um, was having jobs where I was teaching, you know, camp counselor. I was um, a lifeguard, taught swimming. And so I thought, you know, I could still do all of that sewing and be a home economics teacher. So that's the path that I pursued. And, you know, at that time, it's a little bit hard for people to understand now, but home economics was <laughs> a pretty solid um, yes, area of study. It wasn't, you know, being <laughs> cut from all curriculums and everything. It was right. <laughs> it was part of school. You know, everybody had it. I mean, it was a big deal. Um, and I ended up in my career um, being in charge of all of the home economics teachers in the Beaverton School District in the Portland area, which had three junior highs and three high schools. Um, so, you know, I really blossomed in that career. So I'm not sorry that I went into education. And I think later in life now, as I reflect on things, I realize I've been a designer my whole life. You know, whether I was a fashion designer or not, I've always wanted to create things that weren't exactly like everybody else did. Mm-hmm. So you were able to fulfill that dream just in a different sort of way, which is really good. So, yeah. Okay. So you were there, you were teaching home economics and this was the 1960s. And my understanding is that at that time or, or leading up to that time, girls took home ec and the boys took wood shop. And then at a certain point, there was a decision, actually all children should take home ec and all children should take wood shop. Is that right? Well, and that happened towards the end of my career. In 1960, uh, would have been 69, 70, um, I had taken a year off um, when I had my son, and then I went back to work at a brand new junior high school, and they had a program called Differentiated Education, which has now become popular again. It was a federal program, and it was a brand new school. And they decided we should have boys home ec. And they also made the school such that in a cooking class, you could have 36 kids, which is way too many students to manage in a laboratory situation. You know, they would never do that in science, um, but they did it. And I remember having these eighth grade boys and um, 
being a little bit nervous about it um, because it was just a lot of boys. But I figured out a pretty good plan with them and really embraced um, just the fact that this was something completely new to them, all of these things that we would be doing. And I ended up just loving um, teaching uh, the boys, you know, and I just had to get used to um, kind of their learning style, I guess, and just what they're like as eighth graders. Um, so, and uh, it, it was it, it was through them, though. What I think is so fascinating is it was through them that you actually, in some way, discovered quilting because you were looking for yes. this project that yeah, you that could, boys could do. that boys could do that would <laughs> capture boys' imagination or their interest. And so you came mm -hmm. upon this project that was a patchwork pillow project. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I was looking for ideas and it was a book in the library and it was from uh, the UK. And it had a patchwork pillow with big squares in it. And so I felt like, okay, they'll learn how to cut and to cut straight and how to sew straight. And they'll end up with this nice big cushion. And it was very successful. And at that time, I, um, I always got Family Circle magazine. And on one of the covers, there was a log cabin pillow where someone had probably cut up an old quilt and just made a pillow out of it. And I was so fascinated with that log cabin pillow. And it haunted me about, okay, how would I sew that together? And I always, I kept starting from the outside strips and trying uh, to figure out how to get to the middle. Yes. And one day it dawned on me to start in the in middle. The middle. <laughs> You would have thought I invented log cabin. I was so thrilled. I was sharing the idea with everybody. I it knew. is, you know, it is thrilling. The first time I sewed one, uh -huh. I was also extremely thrilled. So I get that uh -huh. feeling. Yeah. And that just really launched me. And I got very interested in um, quilts, but nobody was really doing quilting. And that was, you know, early 70s. Um, I belonged to an embroiders guild in Portland, the Columbia Fiber Arts. Um, and they brought Jean Ray Laurie. Um, oh, I love Jean Ray Laurie. Yes. Yeah. She, I have so many of her books. Yes. How lucky to see her. Well, I made my first quote with her. It was just a small oh. little ball hanging. And it was on applique and hand applique. And I was pregnant with my uh, first child, my son. And so I made it for Jason uh, to put on his wall in his bedroom and I still have that little quilt. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, that's such a cool story. Okay, so so you got uh, interested in patchwork, the log cabin, the floor pillow, and then um, you moved back to Sisters and, um, and you took the money from your teacher's retirement account yes. and decided to open a store. And this was 1975, which by the way is the year I was born, so. Oh my goodness. <laughs> So, okay. So you decided to open a store. So tell us all about like, what was, what went into that decision? What were you thinking about? Okay. Um, well, I had, before I left Portland, I had started teaching patchwork in adult education and I just made up things for people to sew together. You know, um, I wasn't, you know, into templates or anything like that. 
It was just ideas that I came up with. And so when I moved to Sisters, um, there weren't any um, home ec teaching jobs in Central Oregon. So I went to the community college and um, asked if I could do adult education. And we got 25 people signed up for my workshop. And this is when Sisters had 500 people. So um, it was pretty little. And there was no place to get fabric because it was the days of double knits. And I had uh, taught classes at Daisy Kingdom in Portland, which Patty Reed started. And so I would go get fabric from her. And she finally said, Jean, you need to open a store. And I thought, oh, I don't know how to do change. I don't think I can do it. <laughs> and uh, she just kept talking to me. So I took the money out of my account, which was $3,500. And that's how I opened the stitching post. Okay. So there was no, literally nowhere to get these supplies. So you, you no. created a place for them to get, for people, the, the 25 people in the class, plus other people who are getting interested in this little, very tiny town um, to, got, to get these supplies. And it was right at the moment of the bicentennial when quilting was just yes. beginning to uh -huh. draw notice from a new generation. Right. Well, and... Um, I found that people were really eager to learn. And so the whole Stitching Post, I would say, mission is education. You know, it's education and inspiration. And that has kept our store relevant throughout all of these years. And I like nothing better than being in the classroom and seeing people learn. It just kind of feeds my soul. Yes. And is, do you think that the Stitching Post was the oldest or the first quilt shop in the United States? Or do you know of an older one? Uh, you know, I don't. And I remember when, um, you know, I went to a market, but it was the uh, Textile Association of Los Angeles uh, show uh, in L.A. And it was mostly garment um, kind of fabrics. And you would just pick through and look for cottons. Um, and the second year I went... Uh, yours truly was there, Marty Michelle, mm -hmm. and she started a pattern line. And that was so exciting to me because it was somebody was doing something in the genre that I was really interested in. And it wasn't until a couple of years later that uh, Carrie Bresenhan started a uh, mm -hmm. quilt market in right. Houston. Right. You know, I. I've been at every single quilt market since they started. Wow. Fall and spring. Yes. That is amazing. I, just, I don't like to miss them. I, I just find there's a lot of content um, that can help you with your uh, programming and your inventory when you go to market. Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely true. So that that is remarkable, though, to have never missed one. So that that's congratulations to you on that. So, uh, all right. So what you what month do you, did you open? Do you remember what what season you yeah. opened? It was May 23rd, 1975. Okay. So it's uh, it's toward the end of May. And um, as summer is approaching, there's another friend of yours who has also a shop in town, kind of more of a um, handicrafts-like shop. And the two of you get together and decide to do a little show. That's correct. Um, Kathy um, had a lot of consignment goods, you know, pottery and... Um, little paintings, and she had some clothing that people had made, and I think she had some knitted things. And 
she said, well, I just think you should put up quilts and um, be outside with me. And I asked some of the women in the community if I could uh, put their quilts up. And, oh, no, they're not good enough. I said, oh, no, of course they're good enough. And I had only made two quilts at that point. But when I opened my store, my mother uh, reminded me, and I'd completely forgotten, that she had a cedar chest full of uh, her mother's quilts. So I had all of my grandma tots. Uh, quilts that I hung. And so there were 12 quilts. So I had 10 of my grandma's and two of mine. And it was really fun because some of these ladies who had told me, no, their quilts weren't good enough. When they came to town and saw the quilts hanging, they went home and got their quilts and walked to town with them and, and we hung them up. So nice. It, and, <laughs> I'll never forget that. Yeah. And so what were you hanging them on? Was it just like a fence or, or a wall? Yeah. Well, our town is an 1880s Western theme. And so, um, you know, I laid him over the top of uh, like there was a fence there. And then uh, Kathy's uh, store had they had um, kind of a porch like area. And so we took and uh, put a clothesline and used clothespins and hung them that way. Okay. All right. So you've got these 12 plus a few others that were brought into town from other women who saw them and wanted to be part of the action. Um, and you, and you had this little show and was it, it was up for a few days, I'm assuming. No, no, just one day. Oh, one day. Okay. Just <laughs> yes, for that one, one day. day. All right. <laughs> it was <a> Saturday. <laughs> okay. All right. So just a very, very small thing. And I think that's an important, um, sort of picture to paint because, I think it's a neat thing about sisters that this is not like a um, a grand plan. You know what I'm saying? That you had like, we right. are going to produce, <laughs> a, yeah, we're going to produce a premiere event and it's going to be this massive thing. You know, it was not that. It was literally this one day, very grassroots show. Okay. So then tell us what happened the next year and how it started to grow and become something. Well, you know, there was a lot of chatting about it um, with the ladies who had become good customers and things. And I was teaching um, classes and I did some quilt classes, too. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to do it again next year. And so I asked people, you know, um, who would like to, you know, hang their quilt. And I think we probably had 25 or 30, which was pretty good for us. And it just kind of went from there. And. I can remember when we got to the point of having 200 and I thought it was huge <laughs> and now we have 1400. So 200 isn't very many. Um, but I, what I think so special about it is like you said, it wasn't necessarily a grand plan. It was something that grew out of the experience that people were having. And it's a very grassroots show still and we've tried to maintain that ambiance. And that's part of the reason we don't jury any quilts. And I learned early on not to be, you know, judgmental about anything. Because I remember a woman bringing in this whole stack of double knit quilts. And they, you know, they were heavy and bulky and they weren't quilted much. Um, and I just thought I didn't think much of them. Okay, but 
I was, you know, placing quilts around because you always decide where you're going to put them ahead of time. And on the day of quilt show, I'm walking down the street and I look a block down the street and I see this gorgeous abstract quilt. And I think, oh my gosh, I don't even remember that quilt coming in. And I walked down and looked at that quilt and I thought, wow, it was one of the double knit quilts and it looked like a G's Ben quilt. I want to take a minute now to chat with Rebecca Bryan of Bryan House Quilts, the sponsor of today's episode. Hi, I'm Rebecca Bryan of Bryan House Quilts. What is Bryan House Quilts? What are you offering? So Bryan House Quilts has offered in the past, I have patterns online that you can purchase. Right now, I'm focusing on teaching both online, uh, mostly online, but I do offer in-person workshops as well. Okay. And what kind of online classes do you have so far? Well, I've got two. I've got Design Improv with Triangles, which is a, it's a workshop focusing more on design principles. So we use triangles as a guide to learn about graphic design principles and how those principles might apply to quilt design. It's mostly for people that have a basic grasp of sewing, but want to get into designing their own works. My other class is a block of the month style course and it's called Rainbow Triangles Block of the Month. And we are working through my Modern Triangle Quilts book and each month we'll do a new block. You get a video each month and the pattern for that block each month. And then at the end of the year, you'll have this beautiful rainbow triangle quilt. I'm really excited for the reveal at the end of the year. It's going to be, it's, it's beautiful so far and people are having a lot of fun. So it's, it's, one of my favorite courses so far. So I will have a new workshop. Um, it's called Playful Color Theory for Quilters. And again, we're going to be using color and exploring the rainbow and how to use color playfully in your quilt. So we're going to be learning about color theory, but then we're also going to be learning, taking the color theory that I'm teaching, and then you're going to be learning how to apply the color theory playfully in your quilt project. So I ha- I'll have details on my website, brianhousequilts.com. So I, I have a, f- a free webinar that I'm using to promote my new online workshop, Playful color theory for quilters. And the webinar is called Using the Full Spectrum of Color in Quilts. And the webinar is really my trunk show that I've shown for my modern rainbow quilts. And so in the webinar, I'll be showing you how I like to use color in my quilts. So the webinar will be on March 15th. So your listeners can save 20% on all my online workshops by using the code ABBY20. Thank you so much, Rebecca. And now back to my conversation with Jean. Right. So So that's an interesting philosophy. You don't jury. And, you know, I think most of us, when we think of a quilt show, we think of a juried quilt show with award ribbons and um, not everybody gets in and, you know, it gets more and more competitive as the show grows and all of that sort of thing. So if somebody listening did want to enter a quilt, what is required? Well, um, we now, uh, Quilt Show is now a nonprofit. It's Sisters Outdoor Quilt Show, um, dot org. And we are accepting quilts right now for the quilt show. They have to be at least 40 inches by 40 inches. That's the minimum size. And then we have a limited number of places that we can hang, qu- hang quilts that are over 100 inches. And Otherwise, you know, it's, you know, three layers stitched together um, and 
that's pretty much what a quilt is. And do you and do you, um, do you have a requirement regarding materials? I mean, I know you were you were sort of put off by the, um, that double knit, but but now, yeah. what is the requirement well, there? It's pretty much something you can that you're able to hang with clothespins off of clothes. You know, we have uh, coated wire we use now to. Uh, and we put the edge of the quilt over that and use the clothespins. So it has to be something that we can put in our, um, just the parameters of our spaces. Okay. All right. And that's it. And so somebody, yeah. they ship the, the quilt out to you, you put it on display, and then you ship it back. And, and I'm yes. imagining the and quilt. There's, okay, go ahead. There's a whole process for okay. that. And you would want to go online to Sisters Outdoor Quilt Show. And then all of those, any little parameters are in there and it talks about shipping and okay. dates and okay. all of that. But um, what I have found that makes our show so special is that, you know, somebody could have made their very first quilt and, you know, be really excited about it. Well, there's no way they could get in a juried show probably um, these days. But they can hang their show here, or their quilt here and their family comes to see it. And, you know, that's the other thing about our show because it's outside and there's no way we can collect an entrance fee um, that the whole families show up and the friends show up. And so it's a real community sort of feeling. And you see people that meet here, you know, maybe they meet their sister here or, you know, some friends from college or something. Yeah, absolutely. And right. So the show is free. There's no entrance, um, you know, uh, ticket required, as you said. And so people, everybody can come. Um, there is a donation that people can make because as you mentioned, yeah. you now are a nonprofit organization. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that decision to, um, I mean, cause originally the show was an offshoot of the stitch and post the store. And then right. at a certain point you decided this needs to be its own entity and that entity should be a nonprofit organization. So maybe take us back to that thinking and, and explain okay. why. Well, um, you know, as the show grew, we had a small little guild in town, and there were like seven or eight of us. And for a few years, you know, the guild members just worked on the show. But the registration became a bigger and bigger process because I'm adamant about keeping track of things and documenting things. So, you know, you don't want to lose anything. And we never have, ever. Um, and the people that were in the little guild, they didn't really want to work on stuff except the day of the quilt, the quilt show. They didn't want to put in volunteer time on that. And so um, I um, found somebody who would do the registration and we paid them, the store did. And we did that for several years. And then it got to the point where I realized we were um, – we had started our Quilters Affair program at that point, which is an education program the week before Quilt Show. So I felt like I just was juggling these three balls of, you know, the business, the Quilters Affair, and the Quilt Show. And it was a lot. And my accountant was the one that started talking to me. He says, you know, you really need to think about forming um, 
a nonprofit and hiring an executive director. And you were trying to figure out how we would have the money to do that. And we did allow um, up to 30% of the quilts could be for sale. And at that point, Bryce Hamilton, who used to do the Amish quilts, uh, would send quilts out for us to have a, you know, in the quilt show and were also for sale. So there was enough money that was coming in from Bryce. That's what we were using to finance our expenses for the quilt show. And so what I did was we, you know, I budgeted that money and then I kicked in a sponsorship from the stitching post um, for $2,000. And we had enough to pay the person that was doing the registration and became the executive director. And now, um, you know, as the show has grown, um, our, the ODOT, the Oregon Department of Transportation, wanted the highway um, that no, because uh, we have a main highway 20 going through town. They didn't want traffic on that highway. And so now we have to pay for the closure of that highway, which the cost of that is up to $10,000. So, you know, the costs of putting on Quilt Show have really changed with its growth. Yes. And you also uh, rent out the high school. Yes, but that's not Quilt Show. Okay. That's, uh, that's the stitching post because we still, we kept um, the uh, Quilters Affair. I see. So the Quilters Affair, which as you mentioned, is an education, week-long education yes. program that, that runs the week leading up to the Outdoor Quilt Show. And mm -hmm. that is still part of um, the Stitching it's Post. It's Stitching Post. Okay. And, you know, education is what we're about. And it just made sense for that to be us. I see. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I do think people don't understand the, the inner workings of running an event at this scale where you have, I don't know, 15,000 people or something like mm -hmm. that coming to town. And how many days does the Outdoor Quilt Show run now? Oh, it's always been one day. It's always been one day. It's not longer. Because I thought it was longer. Okay. No, we never have done it more than one day. Part of it is um, you use volunteers to put up all of these quilts and take them down. And, uh, you know, when you think about how many you're dealing with, it, when you take them down, um, you know, I guess we could have sorted them per building and then put them up the next day. But I don't think volunteers are going to come and do that two days in a row. Right. You have to um, respect. Yeah. Respect your volunteer yeah. labor for sure. And and it's in July, which I did actually look up and it is the driest month in Sisters uh -huh. Oregon. It is. Um, uh, but have you ever had bad weather? Well, um, one year we got a little rainstorm for about 15 minutes, about three o'clock in the afternoon. And you know, nowadays you can look and see what the weather is doing. And I had said something to our executive director. Um, well, you need to have a, an emergency plan. She, no, 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 Jean, it never rains on quilt show. And I said, um, well, I think we should have a plan in place just in case. I think it's important. And finally, I just said, you are going to do a plan. <laughs> and it's a good thing we had a plan because it was interesting when the rain came, the people who were there and they're hanging from buildings, they grabbed the quilts and pulled them back under the kind of porch like 
you know, the friends of the Billies, most of them. And um, we had the businesses have a ladder available and people just got up, took them down, took them into the businesses. And then we collected all the quilts. We had, I think, four quilts out of, you know, it was at least a thousand that were a little damp, but nothing got soaking wet. And, and there was no damage. And nothing got stolen, you know? No. That's an opportunity right there for some quilt to walk, walk away. Yeah. But you know, when you have, um, and we have a lot of volunteers that are um, kind of quilt fairies are, that are around town answering questions and things. And then all of our um, business people in town are really good about uh, quilt show. It's their best retail day of the year. I mean, they wait for, <laughs> it's like their summer starts when Quilt Show arrives. Yeah, because this is a town, um, you know, we should clarify that has, as I think I mentioned earlier, 2,000 people uh, in it. Um, and when you when you move there, it sounds like it was much smaller even than that. Mm-hmm. And um, and so when, when the show is taking place, I mean, you've got, you know, I don't know, fifteen or 20,000 people coming in from all over the country and, right. and, and all over the world who descend onto this town. And um, as you mentioned, the highway is, is closed. And so talk a little bit about the effect it's had. Um, it sounds like it's, you know, as you said, the, the biggest retail day of the year for these um, shops. Mm-hmm. And, and what else can you sort of point to as sort of a lasting effect of having this um, amazing show take place in this little this little town. Well, what's really interesting, and this kind of backs up to, um, you know, me having the store and I started writing books and then I got invited to, uh, the first time I went to Milwaukee, Wisconsin to be a teacher and a lecturer. And I needed a place to photograph my quilts outside and I found a fence and the mountains were in the background. So anytime I did lectures and I've been out teaching all those years since 1978, um, those photos went up and I didn't realize I had branded sisters. Mm. You know, the B word branding wasn't even in anybody's vocabulary. But what happened is Um, that people remember sisters because of that. I mean, we have visitors um, that come from all over the world. And I have people that will stop me in the grocery store and say, you know, I was in Sweden and they asked me where I was from. And I said, sisters, and they wanted to know about the quilt show. Uh So, um, you know, it's a real iconic event. You know, it wasn't planned to do this for sisters it wasn't planned to do this for our store or anything it's just kind of what transpired through the years and you know I'm just really passionate about quilting and I love teaching and and writing books and having a store and I think I didn't realize it would affect sisters quite how it has but it really has yeah, and you know, it's interesting to think of the towns in the United States that have been transformed by quilting. Because well, Paducah. Right, it's, it's Paducah, it comes to mind, Ham- Hamilton, Missouri has now uh-huh. been transformed by quilting. And it's just, it, you know, there's this certain handful of towns in which mm-hmm. this particular art form has put that town in the map in a way. Mm-hmm. 
So that's kind of fascinating. And, and you're, you're, you're the person who, who made that happen. So, um, okay. So I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, your daughter, Valerie, whom you, um, you have a really neat relationship with. So Valerie Wells, which I'm sure many listeners know, is a fabric designer, quilt designer, photographer, has a business in her own right, doing all of those things in the same industry. Um, And so talk a little bit about what it was like when she was younger, whether, you know, was she always into quilting or, or what was that relationship with you and with quilting like with her? Well, um, she didn't really grow up wanting to sew. <laughs> it was like that was something mom did. Um, but she got, she took a photography class when she was in the seventh grade and they worked in the dark room and she learned to do black and white photography. And, you know, it became her passion. Um, and, you know, she always wanted me to sew different things for her, but she wasn't interested. And, you know, it's hard to force things on your kids. Um, so I just never made an effort to, um, but after she, um, was, well, it was her senior year in college toward the end of the year. She called me one day and she said, you know, mom, um, Stacy and I, this was a friend of hers. We're going to start a little quilting group and could we come over and you, and you just give us a little mini class. And I thought, well, sure. <laughs> so they came over and I taught them how to do log cabin and sawtooth star and nine patch. And I, on a whim, I showed her how to do a crazy patch, but to set, you know, the first patch on a foundation and then you lay a strip on or a piece on and sew and flip it. Mm-hmm. Well, she just took to that. And the next week she made a whole quilt just using that technique. And the, just on a side note, uh, when she and her two friends came to learn how to sew and I had everything set up in the basement for them and, and they were talking about having their first meeting and they were discussing what food they were going to have at it. <laughs> that sounds like quilters. <laughs> That's funny. Um, okay. So, so you introduced her to this and um, sort of so she she kind of got into to quilting and um and then in 2005 it sounds like she became a partner in the business in the stitching post business okay um well, and do you want to talk about that decision about how she she came to be a, a partner yeah. in the, in the um in the store well after college um she went to um North Carolina and lived there for about a year and a half and was trying to find a photography job. And I had given her an old Bernina that I had sewing machine so she could sew when she was back there. And I said, if you ever need help, just go find a Bernina store if anything goes wrong with it. Well, she happened to need something and found a Bernina store and they had fabric too. It was a good size store and she loved it. It was, and maybe she just had to see a store and somebody else's town right um but since she didn't find a photography job she started working there and it was you know about a year later that she called me one day and she said you know mom I'm ready to come home and I would really like to learn the business and I had just had my gal who did the ordering for books patterns and notions um was moving and it was when websites were coming into play and I knew I needed to do a website 
So I offered her that position. So that's how she started at the store. And when she was back there, she had actually um, said something to me about designing fabric. And I knew one person at Quilters only, um, Debbie Stark. Mm -hmm. And um, so anyway, I gave her Debbie's name and uh, she called Debbie, had an interview, and uh, she started designing fabric for Debbie. So that's how that all started. And so when she moved back here, uh, she was still designing with Debbie. And then uh, Donna Wilder um, started Free Spirit uh, Fabrics, and she talked to Valerie about working for her. So Valerie was um, the first designer at Free Spirit. Wow. Wow, that's a wonderful story. And I wondered, um, I'm sure that you've heard the news that Free, yes, Free Spirit it's very is very sad. Yeah, so um, Free Spirit is owned by Coates and Clark, and they've decided right. to get out of the fabric business and shut down Free Spirit, um, which has a fantastic roster of designers at this point. And um, uh, so anyway, it was very sudden. I don't know if you have any thoughts on what caused that to happen or, or what the future holds for um, fabric there. Well, I'm sure um, the um, lead designers will get picked up by somebody else. But when Free Spirit originally started, it was started through Fabric Traditions by Nan Harding. And uh, so it was an independent small company. And it remained that way for several years. And then um, Westminster purchased it and that was when Coates and Clark's uh Coates and Clark got involved because they're the parent company and it's a big corporation and the textile division is not the main part of their business and they essentially it's not profitable for them and they're just done dealing with it because it's not profitable I mean it was a corporate decision, and that's, uh, you know, happens a lot in corporations. Yeah, right, exactly. I mean, that's right. I'm very sad about it because, um, well, for a couple of reasons, you know, um, the goods that I buy a lot of goods from them. Um, and I, you know, I went right to my notebook to see how many goods I have already purchased that are supposed to be coming for quilt show because I need a certain amount of fabric here in order to have the sales I want to have for quilt show. And we're fortunate enough that I had put an early enough delivery on them that I will still be getting all of those goods. So I'm just, you know, any day we should start hearing where some of the designers will be going, but they all won't get picked up because they also, um, had a lot of designers that really didn't have a reputation in our industry in any way. And I don't think necessarily uh, maybe the styles or whatever. I mean, there was a lot of stuff I would never have even purchased from them. And I mean, I think it begs a question, though, about a sort of a bigger question, which is to say, mm -hmm. Um, besides those designers that you were just mentioning, the other ones, the the ones who are are really very very well known, um, mm -hmm. and whose style seems to really appeal, um, 
if you have a company with those that roster of designers and they can't make it profitable, can right. you know, is there a bigger flaw and and is there a bigger problem that all of us should be aware of or should be thinking about? In other words, why would that be that you couldn't make this profitable? You know, that's a question I think I've been mulling over. So well, I think about these things a lot and I think it's part of because I've been in business for a really long time. And to be perfectly honest, I've been feeling um, a real pinch for a couple of years. And we're working harder than we ever have to be the business we want to be. And a lot of it is because the dynamics of our business has been changing. Um, the internet discounters really hurt brick and mortar because brick and mortar does not have the ability to be discounters in the same way that the big internet companies do. And I think that's affected the industry. And the other thing is, I honestly don't understand why new companies pop up when there's only X number of uh, customers out there. And when you just flood the market with more and more goods, you're just dividing up the pie more. You know, unless you create more customers, um, there's a balance there of how many goods you need for the amount of customers that you have. And it's that way in any kind of business. So I have a hard time figuring out why some of these people even decide to go into business. And I know my daughter called me on Monday when she saw it on Facebook and she said, you know, mom, you've been saying that this industry is about to implode on itself. And I think it just did. And I thought, huh. <laughs> so, it, you know, I see it as an adjustment time and maybe everybody's going to take a good look at, do you have to have more of everything or do we want to curate some of this a little bit better? Yeah. Um, and the other thing we're dealing with is an aging quilting population. And, you know, the aging people aren't buying like they used to. They used to always buy for their stash. There's very little, you don't even hear the word stash anymore. Mm -hmm. So, um, and people shop differently than they used to. You know, it's more they buy for a project, period. They don't impulse buy as much as they used to. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, you know, we pay attention to all of this because I am so stubborn and I love having this store, as does my daughter. And we're determined that we're going to be here. And she's we're just here for the long haul. Yes, and that's wonderful. And she's just um, spent quite a good deal of time um, and energy remodeling the Stitch and Post. Yes. And I've been watching on Facebook as it has taken shape. It's a big store. Um, I don't know if you know, but how big it is. Do you know how big it is exactly? It's really quite large. Yes, we have um, about uh, almost 7,000 square feet. And we've always had a gift store also, okay. or not always, but for a long time, we've had a gift store. And the title of it is Twigs. And then when Val came on board um, several years ago, we added yarn. And so we have a yarn department and the um, the gifts. And Valerie had this vision of 
more of a mercantile feeling in the store where you see some of these products displaced with each other and interacting with each other. And um, last year when she told me she was ready to, you know, take over the business, we put together a plan and we've worked with a consultant. Um, it was a person Valerie had hired um, to help her with organizing herself and everything she has to do with three kids and, you know, a business. And uh, Kelly is a life coach. And I just can't say enough about having somebody help you through the transition because it has just been so smooth. Everything's gone like clockwork and um, the results are stunning. I mean, Valerie has always been the person on our staff that can walk in and whip out a gorgeous display in no time. She just has a knack for putting things together. I mean, it's that um, creative uh, sort of energy that she has. Um, so the store really is something else. And I'm loving my new position in the store, which I'm still doing education and helping with fabric buying. But she's doing the rest and she's just done a great job. Yeah, that's fantastic. I think that's a wish that many people have, that they will have a, a child or somebody in the family who not only will <clears throat> do it, but has brings to it their own passion yes. and talent and vision. Um, well, yeah. and you know, I really feel like I was ready to let her do that also. I was ready to not be doing the day-to-day operating of the store and so I really embraced the whole thing too and I've thought about other store owners that maybe are selling their business they're not um, they don't have a daughter or a son to work with and I the that dynamics would be different but um, you know I just feel really good that it's worked so successfully for us Absolutely. And, um, okay. So I wanted to, to make sure we get to your, uh, your recommendations, um, unless there's something else, uh, you wanted to make sure that we hear. I mean, I know that, um, the new layout of the store will be something people who do attend the, the show in July will be able to see for themselves mm-hmm. if they haven't come out and, um, see what Valerie's done. Um, but is there anything else about, about that or about the show coming up that you want to make sure people know about? Or do you want to tell us the date so people can come and the hours and that sort of thing? Okay. Well, the quilt show is always the second Saturday in July. So you just look at your yearly calendar and then you know what day it is. And this year, it's the latest it always is. It's the 14th of July. Um, And then the five days prior to that uh, is Quilter's Affair. And I know we've taken in, I think, about 800 registrations for classes. And we'll still get about 400 more. Wow. As we usually have about 1,200 people who register. So they come earlier in the week. And because Sisters is smaller, um, we only have so many, uh, you know, hotel rooms. So some people stay in Bend or in Redmond. Okay. 
All right. So people should book if they want to and want to make yes. it happen. Uh-huh. <laughs> so go yes. book, book and come out. And I'd love to to go myself sometime. It, it just sounds like a fantastic trip. Plus, then you have some time afterwards since it's July and you're in Oregon to go and do other things that are yes. fun in that area. <laughs> so you can make a, make a longer trip from it. Um, well, you know, a lot of people like to visit our area. It's, it's a, rec- a recreation area. People do a lot of hiking and biking and fishing and uh, so there's a lot of things to do in central Oregon and we just have beautiful summers because we don't get any humidity to speak of you know you might have a really warm day but then it cools down at night because we're in the mountains so Mm -hmm. you know I don't like to go any place in the summer because I just love sisters yeah exactly I I live in New England and we feel the same way where Uh um, when the summer comes that's the best time to be here and so we never want to go away in the summer um, (laughs) because it's beautiful exactly and it's nice to live in a place like that so and I know you love to garden um, so yeah so what kinds of things do you enjoy growing in your garden well, first of all, it used to be in until a couple of years ago, we only would have like 45 frost-free days a year. And then last year, we had a very weird winter. Uh, we had four feet of snow on the ground for two and a half months, which is very unusual. And it really affected business, which was tough. And we had a lot of water damage. Um, but then it started warming up a lot earlier, and we had almost 90 days of frost-free. Uh, so, you know, I had a longer growing season, but I've just figured out how to work with it. And I really like um, to grow vegetables. You know, I have my carrots and beets and um, onions and potatoes and lettuces and chard. And then um, I love flowers. So I always have sunflowers and zinnias and I do a lot of succulents in pots. Uh, You know, gardening is a lot like quilting because you're creating something out of nothing. And um, I just find it's uh, very rewarding. Um, You don't always know what's going to happen. Sometimes things don't come up that you thought were going to. So you're always kind of regrouping and figuring it out. And a lot of times I'll plant my uh, raised beds with, um, I'll use a quilt design and put things um, in the garden so it looks like a quilt block. Oh my gosh, that is a cool idea. I love that. Um, and I know that you've also been enjoying using Instagram um, and are <laughs> active on Instagram. And so I wondered if you wanted to talk about like what, how you think about Instagram and when you turn to it and what you like to do there. Well, you know, I'm not very techie. I haven't embraced Facebook. It just seemed like too much time that you have to put into it. And I'd rather be sewing and creating. Um, But there was something that appealed to me about Instagram because of its photographs. And then, you know, a few comments. And it's a way to see a lot of different things. I mean, I used to do Pinterest, too. And now I don't do Pinterest as much. But um, Instagram, I like the sharing aspect of it. You know, it's kind of like being at a guild meeting and there's show and tell going on. And just to see how other people look at quilting or look at the world. Um, you know, I, I love seeing Sue Benner's um, 
you know, she goes on a walk every morning. She comes and teaches for us too. So I know Sue, uh, but she does the best photographs. I just get so excited to see her things. Um, and I, you know, try to post, you know, a couple times a week and, and sometimes I do more and sometimes I do less. And I had class this week. Um, and when I put up all of my samples, when I'm getting ready to teach, uh, I like to make the design wall look kind of artsy. And so I usually put um, pictures uh, up from my design walls, which I did on Monday when I taught my adventures in art quilting class. Okay, so people can go on Instagram and follow you and get a uh-huh. little bit of a sense of what you're doing, maybe not day to day, yeah. but week week to week and what your what your creative life is like. Um, and I like that uh, comparison to a guild meeting where you just get to see what other people are up to, what they're how they're perceiving mm-hmm. things. And that's a, a wonderful way to describe the the joy of being on Instagram. It's just mm-hmm. that little shot of visual inspiration. And um, you've been doing some fabric printing as well. Yeah, I uh, took a class actually from one of my students. She came to class with this gorgeous fabric, and it was deconstructing printing. And so I said, Bonnie, would you ever come show us some of us how to do that here in Sisters? So uh, Bonnie McWilliams is from Chico, and so she's come the last two years for a four-day workshop. And I had never done anything like that, and... I just love it. I think what I like about uh, the printing process is that um, when you start, you kind of have a plan, but um, depending on how you're using your colors, you start getting these mixtures of colors that come about that are new. I mean, you don't know exactly what you're going to get, so you have to kind of be in the moment to make decisions and you're making design decisions in the moment of should I continue with this color or should I clean the screen and put something else on? Um, and for me, I've, you know, I was doing a lot of nests last year, so I just did single nests, but this year I've been um, overlapping screens and doing more layered kind of work. And then you have this piece of cloth And it's almost like the cloth speaks to you what it needs to be. Do I need to be cut up or do I want to just stay as I am? Do I need maybe a slice through and put, you know, another color through or whatever. But I I guess I like the challenge of working in that way and really being in the moment. Yeah, it's that's neat. And the unexpectedness. There's something sort of similar there in all ways to to gardening where you don't know mm-hmm. what's going to come up and yeah. also <laughs> uh also to to running an outdoor quilt show where there's a lot of different sort of problem solving needed and uh uncertainty and you don't know what's going to come, you know, and that's what's right. going to and who's going to come and yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean it's that's yeah. a neat that's a neat uh, tie through uh for all of these different things. All these pers- suits well and just a comment about quilt show um uh, for a few years i took some time off helping to sort the quilts but i'm back helping to do that now and we really try to when we place the quilts we have to deal with size and with content 
and content, I mean color, design. And so I've put a, a team together of people who I just feel their taste level is really good that I can trust. And so we try to group quilts. If we start seeing like a whole bunch of wildlife quilts, then we're going to try to put the wildlife quilts together someplace and on a building that they will look good on. Um, and those kind of things are just really important to me. And I get so many comments about um, how cohesive the show feels. And, you know, a lot of times, so you'll end up with one quilt that you can't find a friend for it. <laughs> so and a lot of times they're really a stunning piece, but there's nothing else that even like it. So we do have some places where um, a quilt can just be by itself. And there might be another group, you know, just down the sidewalk, but it can be by itself. Um, but I love doing that, too. And, you know, I never had thought about all these things kind of intertwining till you just said it. <laughs> but I think it's true. And I think the level of thoughtfulness, too, and the way that the quotes are displayed, I mean, that really means a lot to the makers and, and to the attendees. But, you know, it, it is a show that's not juried, but that doesn't mean that it's not carefully considered and respectfully put together. Jean, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Walsh and Ups podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you. Well, and you're a good interviewer. Oh, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> that means yeah, a lot. It was great visiting with you, too. Oh, good. Okay. And you've been listening to the Walshing Apps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, walshingapps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing, blogging, and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. Thank you so much to today's episode sponsor, Rebecca Bryan of Bryan House Quilts. Rebecca is offering a new online workshop, Playful Color Theory for Quilters, at the end of March. Head on over to Rebecca's website, brianhousequilts.com, for more details and to sign up for her newsletter. Listeners are welcome to a 20% discount on all Rebecca's online workshops by using the code ABBY20 at checkout. Thank you so much, Rebecca. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I will see you next time.